Let's Talk Land, a weekly land education talk show devoted to learning about land and farms, buying and selling, ownership, and especially for real estate agents and realtors. Hey guys, learn from the experts. This is a free land education show. Hi, my name's Lou Jewell. I'm an accredited land consultant with United Country Real Estate, Sutton Properties, along with my co-host, Teresa, one of our agents who is actually out selling real estate today. Go, girl. Buying or selling homes, land or farms in western Piedmont, North Carolina, or southern Virginia, just give us a shout. We'll help you out. Our office is at 102 East Main Street, next to BB&T Bank in downtown Pilot Mountain, North Carolina. Our company website's www.allsuttonproperties.com. That's A-L-L-S-U-T-T-O-N properties, plural, dot com. All of our shows are dedicated to the Realtors Land Institute staff, and we got the best. And our members in our national websites, www.rliland.com. R-L-I, Realtors Land Institute, land.com. Hey, I'm serious. If you're looking to buy or sell, Go to that website, find one of our members or one of our 500 accredited land consultants, contact them. They will save you money or they will make you money. We are trained land experts. Go to www.rliland.com. Hey, we'd like to thank our sponsor, landhub.com. Buying or selling land, Landhub is the place to be. Hey, we've got a great show today, guys. Our guest host is Norma Nesbitt. Welcome, Norma. Welcome. Good afternoon. Where are you calling from? I am in St. Louis, Missouri. Beautiful St. Louis for that beautiful arch, Missouri. And named after me. <laughs> well, I mean, I you got to really think about it. I thought it was Louis XIV. Yeah, well, he had his head cut off. It's named after you for this afternoon. <laughs> but uh, you were one of our recent guests, Podcast 149. If you guys want to go back and listen to Norma's presentation, it's really great. And anytime I have a guest, I always invite them to in, invite the most interesting person they know and become the guest host, which Norma will be today. I'll be doing the breaks for you. <coughs> and Norma's with Vista Properties Investments and LLC. And your guest today is Greg Smith. Welcome, Greg. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're excited to. Where are you calling from, Greg? Columbus, Ohio. Wonderful, Ohio. All right. Well, we're all over the country, aren't we? Absolutely. And you you are with, uh, uh, you manage territories for the largest investment property exchange. In fact, that's the name of your company, Investment Property Exchange Services. Where are they headquartered? Yeah, so our headquarters for IPX is in Chicago. Okay. And we're owned by a Fortune 500 company called Fidelity National Financial. So our parent company is headquartered down in Jacksonville, Florida. Perfect. And you're one of the managers of many offices around the country, uh, which includes Ohio, Kentucky, Kansas, and Missouri for uh, IPS. And you uh, also are a attorney, a lawyer, a member of the Ohio Bar Association since 1996. And uh, you also admitted to the U.S. District Court of Southern District of Ohio uh, received a B.A. magna cum laude from Kenyon College in 93 and a J.D. from Ohio State, go Ohio State, College of Law in 96. You're a member of Honors Fraternities uh, Phi Beta Kappa, and you practice real estate and business law uh, with uh, downtown Columbus, Ohio, 
Law Firm, which is Chicago title before joining IPX. Welcome on the show. Norma, yep. I'm going to turn okay. it over to you. Okay. So you're throwing the ball in my court. Is that You've right? got it. Make, make a few hoops. Okay. I'm going to try. All right. Well, listen, I want to thank everyone uh, for listening in today. And I was here a few weeks ago, as Lou mentioned, and we talked about real estate. We talked about deferring taxes and how to save our property owners from owning taxes, whether they own various various types of real estate, whatever that may be, and how they can plan ahead of time to do this through the use of the IRS 1031 exchange. And one of the very important aspects and really key components in a successful exchange is the QI, QI being qualified intermediary. And this is why I came back today to invite Greg with me to give everyone a more fuller understanding and comprehension of just the entire 1031 process and what the various roles are that the individuals play, from the property owner to maybe your broker to the qualified intermediary and to finally, you know, get to the closing or the, the completion of a successful 1031 exchange. And I can tell you from experience, the qualified intermediary is the key, the real key to a successful 1031 exchange, meaning a a successful exchange that goes through that is not questioned or doesn't have an audit by the IRS. And with that, Greg, I'd like to touch base with you and let you just give your Uh, explanation of a QI, a qualified intermediary, the qualifications that a certified intermediary needs to have and what their actual process and what they do for the property owner. Perfect. Thank you so much, Norma. And basically, I want to start before before I answer your question there, just telling the podcast audience what a 1031 exchange is in basic terms in case we have some uh, new folks along for the ride today. so Good idea. Good idea. Thank you. Yeah, it comes from Section 1031 of the tax code. That's where the name comes from. It has actually, It's not something new. It's been in the tax code now for 100 years. This is the 100-year anniversary of when they put it in back in 1921. And the basic idea here is simply when you go to sell your property, you're selling that real estate and you're going to have capital gain taxes to pay. And that's always at the federal level when you have a gain and often at the state level, depending on what state you're in. And you don't want to pay those taxes. The government is nice enough to say, hey, if you don't pocket anything and instead you roll those funds into a new investment, you can defer your taxes and kick that can down the road, hopefully never pay the taxes, which we might get into, but you'll at least put the taxes off until you decide to sell your new property somewhere down the road. So that's the basic concept, keeping you from paying taxes when you sell if you reinvest. And it is a beautiful concept. Uh, Like Lou mentioned, I've been doing this for almost two decades now, a little over 19 years, and I love what I do. I've helped Everyone from investors selling properties for $50,000 up to several Fortune 500 companies. And it is a great concept. It can really help everyone. All right. Now to answer Norma's question, 
you know, what is a qualified intermediary, what are the qualifications, and so on. Well, the term qualified intermediary, and we're going to usually be saying QI today, comes from the Treasury regulations. The Treasury oversees the IRS within the government, and a lot of the rules for how a 1031 exchange work, uh, works comes from those Treasury regulations. They also come from case law and the federal government, the states. They come from things called revenue procedures, revenue rulings, private letter rulings, technical advice memorandums, all kinds of crazy things that the uh, IRS puts out for guidance through the years. And by kind of drinking from that fire hose of information, uh, you, you learn how these 1031s work. Um, and then we as the QI try to make it simple for you. Now, I'm going to give a list here, and don't, don't get bored, just stay with me. I promise it won't take more than 20 minutes, but I'm going to give a list here of all the qualifications you have to have to be a qualified intermediary. Okay, no, so your, your podcast connection didn't fail there. There are actually no qualifications whatsoever to do this job. So, you know, I, I was sticking my chest out very <laughs> until that moment, but uh, here's what's interesting. There are actually things that disqualify you from acting as a qualified intermediary, and you can't, you can't be the exchanger's relative. You can't be their employer or employee. Uh, you can't be someone with an agency relationship, so it can't be your attorney, your accountant, your banker, your real estate broker or agent. So, you know, if you've done any work for that party in the past two years in an agency relationship, you're disqualified from acting as the QI. And the reason for that is the government set this up so that the QI steps into your shoes and actually becomes the principal in the transaction. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, we typically don't have to go into the chain of title. So in most exchanges, you as the seller, the exchanger, will still deed that property directly to your buyer. And when you go to buy the replacement property, the seller of that property will deed the property directly to you. And as the qualified intermediary, we typically are not getting in the middle of that. But we still do get assigned into the contract as the technical seller. We hold the money until you reinvest it. And we get assigned into the replacement property contract on the back end of the exchange. So just as a quick side note, because we probably won't have time to talk about this today much, but there are other types of exchanges beyond the delayed exchange that we'll be talking about, uh, you know, during this podcast. A reverse exchange is if you need to go and buy your new property before you've been able to sell the old property. And when you get into a reverse exchange, the IRS says you're not allowed to own both properties at the same time. So if you're buying that first, if you're buying first, how do you avoid that? Well, they let you use what's called an accommodation title holder, which as a practical matter is still our company, but we're going to set up a new LLC and actually take title to that new property on your behalf. And then from that closing date, the IRS gives you 180 days to get your old property sold and then complete the exchange when we transfer uh, your new property over to you just after the sale of your old property. There's also what's called a construction exchange, which is the other type of 1031 exchange where we would take title to the property. 
So let's say you sold a property for $2 million, and you're just going out to buy land, but you're going to build a $5 million building on it. The land value alone might not help your tax numbers that much, but the IRS will allow us to take title on your behalf to the land. They only give you the rest of your 180-day period to do construction, but however much you can get done in that 180-day period will count towards your 1031 exchange tax deferral numbers. So just wanted to mention those quickly. There are types of exchanges, the reverse and the construction exchange, where we would take title, but in 90% plus of exchanges, we don't have to get into the chain of title. But, uh, yeah, the main function we're doing as a qualified intermediary, we're holding that money until you reinvest it. So, you know, that's a pretty big deal, and you should really have some uh, bells going off in your head. Wait a minute. This guy, Greg, or someone like him has to hold my money but there's no qualifications whatsoever for doing his business. You know, that, that should bring some concern. It, it absolutely should. So we'll talk about that more in, in a little bit. But another thing the qualified intermediary does is the QI will prepare the documents uh, that you need in a 1031 exchange in case the IRS were to audit you that you can show everything was done correctly. And in the end, what's going to happen is you're going to file a Form 8824 with your tax return to show that you've done this 1031 exchange and completed it correctly. Now, this thing about the money. Yeah, since it's an unregulated industry, there are a lot of good companies out there doing this business, I can assure you. But there have been bad actors throughout history, and there will continue to be some bad actors throughout history. Uh, it's... Uh, can be a little scary. So there's some questions you need to ask before you hand over your money to someone. The things you would already think of, hey, how long have you been in business? How many exchanges do you do? You know, who, who, who refers you? You know, who can tell me that you're, you've done previous deals and they went okay? Once you get through that obvious stuff, there's more things you need to look at. Because I've even seen some very reputable companies where somebody figures out a way to run off with the money. And as the exchanger, you need to always be asking the question, hey, if someone does run off with my money, how am I getting it back? And there are good answers to that. Uh, I'll brag a little bit about our company. You know, we have a $100 million fidelity bond. We've got a $30 million errors and omissions coverage insurance policy. Most important, because of who our parent company is, Fidelity National Financial, uh, they're the largest title company in the world because collectively – they own Chicago Title, Fidelity National Title, Commonwealth Title, and other underwriters. And one nice thing about doing business with us is that they come in and they give a $50 million performance guarantee on every deal that we handle. Our guest, so, excuse me a second, guys. Our guest today is Norman Nesbitt with Vista Properties Investment, interviewing Greg Smith with Investment Property Exchange. This is Let's Talk Land. We'd like to thank our Sponsor, LandHub.com. View thousands of properties for sale at LandHub.com. Greg, you were talking about bad actors. Uh, you want to continue that? Yeah, thank you, Lou. So, you know, just to finish up that last thought, you want to make sure your money's safe because, quite honestly, that's more important than anything else in your 1031 process. And it is something you just need to do a little homework with 
make sure you're working with a large, secure company. Uh, make sure they've got the proper insurance in place. Look for a third-party guarantee. And, uh, you know, just, just use some common sense there. But understand this isn't regulated, so you do need to do a little homework there uh, if you're not working with maybe one of the biggest companies in the country. Exactly, and I have to say from experience in working with my clients, whether as a, a broker or as uh, their investment advisor with the securities products that I have, in either way, they'll come back to me and want to know, well, how, how much money do I have? What are the final numbers? And I say, you know, that's not up to me. That's up to your QI. You need to go back to the QI because they are the person who actually holds the funds and who calculates the numbers. Is this not correct, Greg? All right. We're, we're, we're holding the funds. And we, we provide all the information at the end of the exchange that your accountant or you would need to file your Form 8820. Right, for the customers. Well, let me ask you, uh, you mentioned, Greg, you're in Ohio. I'm in St. Louis. Lou's in North Carolina. Our listeners may be all over the country. How can you help and work with them when they are in different parts of the country? Sure, great point. And one nice thing about this being a federal uh, part of our tax code is that it's easy to do it from anywhere. It's easy to have a client selling a property in California and buying their replacement property in St. Louis. It's easy to have them selling in North Carolina and going down and buying that beautiful home in, in South Carolina at Hilton Head Island. Uh, you know, it does have to be investment property initially. We'll get into that. But, uh, yeah, it's very easy to do from anywhere. So uh, as a basic idea, what happens is, whether someone's calling from anywhere in the country, we're going to have an initial conversation. If they want to have their real estate agent, their attorney, their financial planner, uh, whomever on the line, that's perfect. We can do a conference call and get everyone together and kind of make sure what the exchanger is planning makes sense, works within the rules, is what they want to be doing. And once we get past that point, uh, and, and by the way, there's never any fee for that review. That review is always free of charge. Uh, if we talk for two hours and the exchange doesn't make sense, which that does sometimes happen, uh, there's, there's uh, no, no fee involved, so no obligation. Uh, and I'll just mention now, if you do the exchange, fees are still pretty minimal in my mind. Uh, we charge $750 to set up an exchange and handle the sale. We charge $250 for the replacement property purchase. So for most exchanges, the total fee ends up being exactly $1,000 when all is said and done. So when you look at a closing statement and you see real estate commissions and title fees and everything else, we're usually not one of the biggest fees involved with selling your property and being able to reinvest tax deferred. So uh, but then what's going to happen after we've had that conversation and once you have your property and contract to sell, we're going to ask you who the title agent is handling the closing. And we're going to get in touch with that attorney or that title agent handling the closing. We'll ask them to send us a copy of the contract and the title commitment. Once we've reviewed those two items, that's when we go and draft up your exchange paperwork. That paperwork is going to include an exchange agreement, which is the large document, an assignment of contract where you're assigning your rights over to us as a qualified intermediary, making us the technical seller in the deal, and there will be three or four other documents in that closing package. 
We're going to get those out to you so you can sign those anytime at or before the time of that initial closing. It breaks my heart. I get calls every week from people who they closed last Friday, and now they want to do the 1031 exchange. They mistakenly think because they have this 45-day identification period, they can choose to do it in the 45 days. But what happens is the exchange does have to be in prior to the time that the closing is through. And, you know, so you, you want to make sure you've acted in advance. You need to make sure you get there, you, you talk to us, we've gotten things set up. And we can set it up either for DocuSign, for electronic signatures, which makes life a lot easier these days when a lot of people aren't even going into a formal closing anymore, you know, because that's the way they like to do it or because of uh, COVID and all of those things going on. Uh, so we can set it up for DocuSign. Or we can send out regular documents when customers prefer that. And we don't need originals back, so they can sign those, scan them back to us, fax them back to us, whatever they need to do. So it keeps that process pretty easy. Then after the closing, the title company or the attorney handling that closing is going to wire the funds into their exchange account that we've set up. Now, that's just a simple interest-bearing bank savings account. The exchanger is going to earn the two cents of interest that the banks are paying right now. <laughs> and... You know, pretty, pretty, pretty simple process there. We're not, we're not investing the money. There's no risk of loss. It's just a simple savings account. Uh, no bells and whistles, but completely safe. So then you've got your 45-day period. We're going to make sure if you haven't already purchased your replacement property in the first 45 days, which, of course, you're welcome to do, then by day 45, you've done the identification form. You know, sometimes you'll be... Uh, working with Lou, and Lou's found the perfect replacement property for you, and you're going to write down that address. Sometimes you're going to be working with Norma, and Norma's found the perfect securitized piece of real estate for you, and you're going to give us the description of that. But we're going to make sure you've done that in the 45-day period. And then also from that closing date, you've got the 180 days to get closed. When you're ready to buy that new property, it's the same process. You'll let us know the title agent or attorney you're working with. They will in turn, send us the contract and title commitment and their wiring instructions. We'll get the little bit of paperwork put together. You need to sign on the back end, get that out to you, and you'll sign to authorize the wire to be sent for the purchase. So in a nutshell, Norma, that's, that's a little bit of that part of the process. Right, right. Well, and that's, that's very important because for those that are listening, they need to know that they could call or contact you and that you could give them the direction and the guidance that they might need. Because what I found is so important is the pre-preparation that is necessary to make and to have a successful 1031 exchange transaction. It's the preparation that is so important. Yeah, ab absolutely. In our, in our next section, we'll get into some detail about some preparation hints that we've uh, got for you to make sure you're preparing when you need getting things put together so there are no mistakes made and so you're uh, lead a happy, healthy 1031 exchange. I did want to take just a couple of minutes and, and just talk about some of the basics of exchanging. For those of you who don't know, uh, we've mentioned how you have the 45 days to identify in 180 days. There's also these ID procedures. They're strange. They are very strange what they came up with, all right? The, the first rule is called the free property rule. That means you can always identify 
up to three potential replacement properties with no restrictions. So it doesn't matter how much they cost, what type of property they are. Uh, they do have to be some kind of business use or investment real estate, because that always applies to 1031. Um, but you could have one that's commercial, one that's residential. That's no problem. So you could list some farmland, an office building, and a shopping center. You know, they, uh, the like kind rules are very, very flexible. I get that call several times a day with people saying, I'm not sure if what I'm selling is going to be like kind of what I'm buying for this 1031 like kind exchange. Well, like kind came from many years back, and they were allowing 1031 exchanges to be used for anything. So other than stocks, bonds, and notes, you could do a 1031 on aircraft. You could do it on business equipment. You could do it on fun things like racehorses, artwork, collectibles. <laughs> well, with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that went away. Okay, so a few years ago now, uh, 20. 16 or maybe it started January 1st of 2017, that yeah. uh, act kicked in. It's real estate only now, okay? So you can't do 1031s on anything except for real estate. But within real estate, there's great news. It's incredibly flexible. It's perfectly okay to sell your duplex and buy a shopping center. It's perfectly okay to sell farmland and buy into securitized real estate, the Delaware Statutory Trust. So you can do anything for anything as long as it's some type of property used for productive use in a trade or business or property held for investment use. So lots of flexibility there, which is great. Right. In other words, in other words, it's not for a single family residential home that is used as a residence. That does not qualify. Yeah, that's exactly right, Norma. Um, if you're selling something that is currently your principal residence when you're selling it, it won't be 1031 eligible. If it was previously your principal residence and you turn it into a rental property, which a lot of people end up doing rather than selling it and then down the road to sell it, then that's something that's probably going to be 1031 eligible. Right. I think uh, Lou or Teresa may remember that uh, the last time I was on, she had a friend, Teresa did, who had just, I believe, inherited a property and it was a residence, so my suggestion to her was that the friend might consider turning it into a rental for a year or two if she wanted to eventually do a 1031 exchange. And that's something we do see that is done. Absolutely. That is a great idea, definitely something we see clients uh, taking advantage of. Wanna... And the... Go ahead. Go ahead, Norma. I was just going to suggest that sort of leads me into the next area that I was uh, things that is so important is just preparing for the 1031 exchange, knowing that you have all of these different options as far as types of, of properties to reinvest, but then to be prepared, there are more issues that need to be addressed as well, such as the type of ownership and how it's titled and the transfer of ownership being the same as how the property is titled. And that's something that I find people have not thought about or usually given enough time to that sometimes we run into problems and it's too late to make those changes. Oh, that is a great point, and I run into that almost every single day. And I had yeah, a, me, me too. <laughs> I had a title agent a couple of days ago because I had called up and I said, hey, this client of yours that's doing the closing with you, uh, they want to do a 1031 exchange. They're going to be buying this property to complete their exchange. So would you 
mind please sending me a copy of the contract and the title commitment and your wire instructions? And this woman said, well, why do you need the title commitment? I don't think you need that. And then she sent it to me, and it showed that this, this woman who was the exchanger was listed as the, the party going into title. Well, so I had to call her back up, and I had to call the clients up, and I said, hey, we got a little problem here. Uh, these people happened to sell as husband and wife. Husband and wife were both our exchangers. So when they got go to buy the new property, just like Norm was just mentioning, you need to show it's the same taxpayers on the back end of the exchange. So it wasn't going to work for wife to go into title just by herself. What would happen then is on the technical, yeah, she'd be happy. She'd defer all her taxes, but her husband would end up paying all of his taxes for his half of the sale. Obviously not what they want. <laughs> you know, that, that's exactly the reason why we look at the title commitment, even on the replacement side. We want to see how they're planning to take title. Sometimes it doesn't even match up with what they've got in the contract. And so we need to really see that ahead of time so we can make these fixes. You know, usually it's pretty simple, right? However you sold the property, go and buy the property. There are some interesting wrinkles to that. One would be, let's say you sold property as... Norman Nisbet, and it was uh, some land that you owned. You, 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 there were no buildings on it. You were just holding this land for appreciation through the years, and you went and sold it, and you made a killing because you had that Midas touch. But then you decided, hey, on the replacement side, I'm going to buy an apartment complex. Well, you own the property. You sold this land in your own name. Maybe you don't want to own that apartment complex in your own name, right? People like to use the LLC, the Limited Liability Company, for that very reason, right? Limit their liability. Exactly. And so what's nice here is this is one of the exceptions where the IRS will let it happen. You can sell in your own individual name and go buy the replacement property as, you know, Norma's LLC. And the, here's the key here. A single-member LLC is considered a disregarded entity for federal tax purposes. What that means is the IRS kind of ignores that it exists. So even though you get that state-level LLC protection, the IRS still sees Norma on both sides of the exchange. So they ignore the LLC, and the taxpayer is just Norma as an individual on the front end and Norma as an individual on the back end. So you can Excuse me, guys. use the single LLC to your advantage. Our guest host today is Norman Nesson with Visit Properties and Investments, and she's interviewing Greg Smith, her guest, Investment Property Exchange. This is Let's Talk Land. We'd like to thank our sponsor, LandHub.com. Looking to sell your land? Try LandHub.com. Now, Norma, please continue. Greg, um, I, I, I appreciate your comments. I have additional questions and issues that I have run into with clients in the past, though in reference to types of ownership and preparation. So, you know, it's how the property is titled, and it must transfer as into the ex newly exchanged property as to how it was titled. What if you have a situation where I've had multiple owners in an LLC? They want to sell the property, but then they realize they would need, in order to do a 1031, they would need to all be in the same LLC to transfer into another property. How would you suggest that they do pre-preparation 
for a 1031 exchange? Yeah, that's a great question, Norma. And that's one of the most complicated issues that we certainly come across as a qualified intermediary. So obviously, when an LLC has owned the property for investment and goes to sell it, and you run into that situation where the LLC with multiple members doesn't want to continue on as the LLC and do the exchange. Correct, yeah. Methods for some of the members to exchange while others don't. And depending on exactly what they want to do, the best setup could be a little bit different. So let me give a couple quick examples. And quite on, this is a subject we could spend hours on, but I'm going to give you the quick overhead view. So if it was three members in an LLC and two wanted to continue on and exchange together, and one, let's say, wanted her money out of the deal at the time of the sale, then probably the simplest and best way in most cases is going to be at the time of closing, the LLC will deed out, let's call it a one-third interest to Jane, who wants her cash at closing, and then they'll deed over to the buyer two-thirds of the property coming from the LLC, one-third of the property coming from Jane. Jane will end up getting her cash at closing, will end up paying her taxes. The LLC continues on now with just two members and does the exchange. So that's one possible way. Another scenario we see daily is the two-member LLC, where it's 50-50 ownership. One partner wants to exchange, the other doesn't. Well, there's different ways you could handle it there. If they want to keep the LLC, the exchanging member could bring in a, a, a happy third party. That could be a relative or a good friend or any friendly party. They could gift or sell them, say, 1% of their membership interest. And then they could keep the LLC the same way as we just mentioned in the three-person deal. And the significance of bringing in that extra person is if they tried to keep the LLC by themselves, that's called a technical termination of the partnership. That would mess things up because you've gone from partnership status with a two-member LLC down to sole proprietor status as a one-member LLC. So that's why you'd have to bring someone else in first. Right. Well, what we see more often than that, Norma, is the classic drop and swap, where they just go ahead and deed it 50% out to Joe and 50% out to Jane, and then one of those people might be exchanging, one might not, or they could both exchange, but they're just exchanging with their half, not buying the new property on the replacement side together anymore. And there are some advisors who worry about drop and swap risk. They think that the IRS could come in and they could argue that even though the LLC may have owned this rental property for 10 years, that Joe and Jane as individuals only property momentarily before they sell it, and that would make them one ineligible. So that's somewhere to plan far in advance if you have a nervous uh, that you transfer that out to the two people before you get into contract to sell it, which would help their case an unlikely event of an audit. Now, a lot of advisors don't think that's a risk. They say that really the only risk is in the states of California or New York. So if you're selling in one of those two states and you try to do a drop and swap, those states are pretty aggressive about trying to shoot things down because they want to collect their state tax. <laughs> in California, for example, <laughs> right, it's 13.3% they're collecting. It's pretty brutal. So... You know, you do have to have a little extra caution if you're selling in California. But by and large, for the, for the rest of the 
we've seen the IRS states leaving those deals alone. But that gives you a little bit of an idea of, you know, ways you would need to take steps in advance of the sale so that the LLC itself didn't have to move on to the exchange with all the different parties when some may not want to exchange. Understand. Well, I don't want to belabor the point, but I have another instance with clients, and this the property is in a C corp, and so uh, at this point they have been advised by their attorney that they can't sell for a number of years until the C corp is unraveled, so to speak, and they then they would uh, uh, be able to exchange then. But until such time as that happens, they would have to lease and they couldn't sell the property unless they want to pay taxes. Yeah. So, again, that goes back to structure and planning, pre-planning, correct? Absolutely. And and what happens there is with an S-corporation or a C-corporation, the IRS doesn't give you a method of dropping the property out to the owners or the members without that being a taxable event. So with the LLC, it's perfectly allowed to deed that property out to a member, and that event is not taxable. But with a corporation, whether it's S or C, unfortunately, just the act of dropping it out of the entity is a taxable event, even if you haven't sold it to an ultimate buyer and collected any cash yet. So that's where the problem kicks in. I think that uh, that advisor was giving good advice there. Right, and that's that's what's happened. They're in the process of, of leasing uh, at this point until such time as they can change. You know, another factor we haven't mentioned, but we, I think we should touch on briefly, is when you own a property, but you don't own it free and clear, there is a loan on the property. Many people are not aware of the fact that you do have to meet that loan to value in your replacement property. Is that something that you work with and uh, deal with, I'm sure, regularly? Yeah, that that's crucial to understand. And what you'll see in our literature and other companies' 1031 exchange literature usually starts with, to get full tax deferral, you want to buy a property of equal or greater value to the property that you sold. Now, that's not technically correct, all right? What's technically correct is the IRS wants to see two things. They want you to reinvest all of the net proceeds from your sale, and, like you're mentioning here, they want you to replace any debt that you pay off at closing either with new debt as a new loan on your nice new property, or you could bring in additional cash if you wanted to. So technically what that means, Norma, is your magic number, when you go and you sell that property for $300,000, and let's say you had $20,000 in closing costs, those closing costs might be your state commissions, your title fee, so on. Your net proceeds there, the $300,000 minus the $20,000, becomes 280000 and right. that becomes your magic number. And that number might be made up of, you know, 150000 of cash and 130000 of debt that you're paying off to the bank. So you're exactly right, Norm. When you go to buy that new property, you need to use the 150000 of cash as down payment and then either get a loan of 130000 or more, or if you're you know, if you're rich and you've got another big bank account sitting there and you don't mind uh, not getting a loan but throwing more cash into the deal, you're certainly welcome to do that. The IRS is always okay with you having additional equity in the deal. They won't let you go the other direction. So maybe you sell for <laughs> 1000 and buy for 300 
but your friendly banker comes to you and says, gosh, Norma, you're our best client ever. You're worth a billion dollars. So we'll, we'll give you a 90% loan. You can just put 10% down. Well, if you had a lot more than 10% coming out of your sale in terms of net proceeds, you got to tell your banker, no thanks. I need to use all the cash from my sale because if that cash comes back to me, it's going to end up as taxable boot in the transaction. Yep, exactly, exactly. Well, this, this part of the, our presentation and program here has been really informative, but I'd like to go back to something else that you mentioned earlier, the fact that in 2017 we did experience some changes in our tax law and the fact that, you know, 1031 was somewhat affected then, as you mentioned, with uh, the it's straight real estate now, no personal items, no yachts, no horses, no uh, jewelry, whatever the case may be, artwork. Uh, and now we're looking in, at another fight again with uh, possibly changes in the taxes. So please explain how important this is to the economy to our industry as a whole to maintain the 1031 exchange. And it's been in effect for 100 years, so it has to be doing something really, really good to to <laughs> our, our business and to our economy. Yeah, that's right. Believe me, this is not the first time that our government on either side of the aisle has decided to look at tax reform, right? And every time there's been tax reform through the years, just about 1031 has been under attack. Because people look at it and they see, oh, this is a fat cat tax break for the rich. And we're going to explain a little bit about that next. And, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for bringing that up, Norma. So the proposal that is out there right now from the Biden administration is a, a limit of $500,000 in gains deferred. And that certainly doesn't seem like that big of a deal because that's not going to affect everyone out there. And people who have that kind of money or companies that have that kind of money can certainly pay more in taxes. And a lot of us wouldn't disagree with that. But we'll explain in a minute why that might be, not be such a great idea. But that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about ending 1031. They're doing something that would limit it. But there are also other things going on that would affect 1031 outside of the direct 1031 arena. One of those, they're just talking about higher tax rates. And I expect this to happen, quite honestly. During the uh, Obama administration, the 15% capital gain rate jumped up to 20% at higher income levels. And the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, added a 3.8% tax to a lot of real estate deals. So they were able to get a lot of deals to jump from 15% up to 23.8%. Uh, what the Biden administration is talking about is potentially getting rid of capital gain rates altogether and doing everything as ordinary income rates. Um, so that's, you know, no way to know in our crystal ball if that's going to happen yet, if something will change or if that will even be voted on. But that's certainly what they're talking about. And then the biggest one to me is what's called the stepped-up tax basis upon death. So let's say you own a piece of real estate worth $700,000. And at the time you pass away, you, you, you leave that to your favorite son. And what happens today is, unless you're the 1% of the 1% and you don't have good tax planning, you're probably not going to pay any federal estate taxes on that money. Uh, people don't like the death tax. 
And then when you when you leave that money to your favorite son or favorite daughter here, they're going to inherit that at a stepped up basis, which means if the property was appraised at 700000 at the time that you pass, they get it at a tax basis of $700,000. If they don't want to own your uh, apartment complex, you left them, they can turn around and sell it the next day for 700000 and that'll be tax-free money. So that's a way to leave things to your heirs tax-free, and that's a bit of a home run in the 1031 process. So one of the things being talked about now is getting rid of that. So instead of getting a stepped-up tax basis, presumably what they would do is you would inherit that property at mom or dad's tax basis or whoever left you that property. And so if you turned around and sold it, all those taxes would get paid. So those are the big changes they're talking about. And for those of you who, who I think I might even think this way if I wasn't an expert who's been doing this for two decades, I might think, yeah, this is just a tax break for the rich. But there have been some really interesting studies done that I would invite everyone to check out. One was done by the giant accounting firm of Ernst & Young. The other one was done by a couple of college professors. Uh, I believe one's at the University of Florida, and the other one is at uh, Syracuse University. And their names are Ling and Petrova. And they've done a study, and both of these studies found the same thing, one on the macro level, one on the micro level. But what they found was, if you would take 1031 out of the tax code, the government's actually going to bring in less tax revenue, and all you're going to do is hurt the U.S. GDP, the gross domestic product. Mm -hmm. It will go down by billions of dollars per year ongoing and never recover that anywhere. That'll just be an ongoing loss due to that not being there. Now, as someone who's been doing this so long, this has become common sense to me. Let me explain why. If you go to a seller and you say, hey, I can bring you a buyer to your property for $1.5 million. And that seller had been thinking, oh, my gosh, I thought my property was worth $1 million. They're going to bring me $1.5. This is fantastic. And I see it happen again and again where the seller is a very savvy investor and he or she says, no thanks. And they say, no thanks, because they need to know what they're going to buy as their replacement property before they're willing to sell. So they're only going to sell if they can re reinvest their money under 1031. If you come to them with a great offer that's not 1031 eligible, they say, no thanks, they'll just keep holding on to their property. So what happens here is sellers simply aren't going to sell, and the volume of transactions going on will become much, much less, because why do people want to pay 30% in taxes and then go invest in the stock market when they can just keep their real estate working for them at a 100% level. And so it's a pretty scary thing, but what would absolutely happen is instead of, you know, a, a Lou making a commission or a Norma making a commission or a Greg Smith QI making a few dollars or a title company making some money or an appraiser making some money or a bank making a new loan or the construction company getting new business and on and on and on and on, all the hundreds of parties that are in the real estate world, instead of them all making less money and paying, uh, you know, a smaller tax bill to the government, when there's transactions, everybody makes more money. Even though the government isn't collecting all of those capital gain bills, they are collecting more in income tax from everybody, and they come out ahead. 
And that's what these stories, of sh- these uh, studies by Ernst and & Young and Ling and & Petrova has shown in great, great detail. So the attack-the-rich philosophy that people want to use and making the rich pay their fair share actually hurts more than anybody else because the smaller deals with the smaller taxes you would collect are a smaller part of that. The larger ones are the ones where, hey, a real estate agent is making a bigger commission. A title company is making a bigger uh, amount of profit on that title policy, on and on and on, and they're all paying taxes along the way. So it's not necessarily common sense. And once we get in front of Congress and explain these things, they usually come around. You know, that's what's interesting. We have found in our industry and, and uh, you as well as in our uh, our packet in a political action groups that we have worked with and with other organizations I'm involved with, the ag business as well, we have all found that it's so important to get to the staffers, to get to the congressmen, women themselves, because they don't understand the full concept of Tender One and the impact that it has. So, again, it's a matter of of educating those that um, uh, that are in those positions to make the decision. That's such a great point. Now, our company and other companies are running letter-writing campaigns. If you go to our website at www.ipx31.com, and that's P as in property, X like x-ray, ipx 1031.com, you'll, you'll find the letter-writing campaign. I'm telling you, it can take you 30 seconds. You go in there, you put in your address or your zip code, it'll bring up who your Congress people are, it'll automatically write the letters for you. You can take a look at that, make sure it makes sense to you what's being said. You can hit a button, and those letters will go off in your name to the various members of uh, Congress that apply to your area. So we, we've done this before. Uh, we'll do it again, probably. Uh, yes, yes, we have. <laughs> these, these letters do make a difference. Congress tells us that they do. Uh, I've been to several lobbying trips through the years. Uh, I can tell you some great, great stories. I, I don't have too much time to tell you them, but I'll, I'll tell you that back in 2015, probably, I made several trips to D.C. Uh, I met with so many members of Congress, and some of it was really beautiful. The idea that you could walk into these buildings, you could walk right into a member of Congress' uh, office, and they'd often sit down with you and have a meeting with you right there. We did that multiple times. No, no appointment ahead of time in some of these cases, and it was a great thing. Now, there was also the beast part of it that wasn't so beautiful. <laughs> I remember with meeting with Speaker of the House John Boehner back in, I think it was 2015, shortly before he decided to give up on politics. And uh, he really, he looked like he had been beaten down by politics for years and years. He had just had it. And he said, you know, the two sides can't agree that the sky is blue anymore. We're not getting anything accomplished. And that was disheartening. You don't want to see politics uh, on either side of the aisle keeping things from getting done. Um, so we saw a little bit of everything. But it was great. We were, one time I was there as a guest of the National Association of Realtors as a as someone to talk about 1031 exchanges with Congress. One time as part of the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, which is a trade organization for qualified intermediaries. Mm-hmm. And so I've done a lot of lobbying and meetings with Congress through the years. I'll tell you, it is important. Exactly. It is. There, there are a lot of them that, that, that don't understand it. Now, 
members of Congress using 1031 exchanges. And the important thing is you need to get in front of the ones that are on the committees that are going to put these proposals out there and be behind really what's going to get into new tax laws. So, um, yeah. Well, exactly. And when we go to your website and we click on the right buttons, then these letters will be taken directly to those that are in, in those positions. Yep, yep. It'll automatically go to your two senators in your state and your member of Congress and your district and it's a very it's a very well thought out system that they put together. Yes, we all need to do that because we can't let up the good fight. I know uh, last time around in what 2016, you know, we were all work, working together and planning the different organizations with our our groups, with our letter campaigns, with any other local campaigns uh, in newspapers, et cetera, in order to preserve the 1031 and. Uh, you know, I think we did a good job at that time. You know, it, they did make changes, as you said, but it wasn't in the real estate area, so we were able to preserve that. And it's been there 100 years, so it has to be working. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're 100% correct. And, you know, Norma, you brought up something during a break, and I wanted to mention it right now because I think a lot of listeners will be interested in it. But you wanted me to talk about the vacation home situation. Yes, I'm so, and thank you. I had forgotten. Yep. Yes, go right ahead. Yeah, I just well, I think we're in the last couple of minutes here, so I thought I would mention that quickly. But let's say you've sold your rental property and you want to go down to Florida and buy a place in Naples or Hilton Head Island or what have you, anywhere. It could be in your own hometown. And But what you really want to do is buy a vacation home. You don't want to rent it out to people. You want to keep it just for your own family. Well, that won't qualify on its face for a 1031 exchange, because like we've said, it has to be some type of business use or investment property. But the IRS did put out what's called a safe harbor. And a safe harbor means if you will follow these rules for the first two years you own the property, then in year three you can do as you please with that property. What the safe harbor says is for each of the first two years you own that beautiful Hilton Head property, they want to see you rent it out at least 14 days per year. Well, that's pretty easy in most cases. Uh, the next thing is they say don't use it personally more than either 14 days per year or 10% of the total number of days rented if that gives you more than 14 days per year. And if you can live with that for two years, year three, you could stop renting it, make it a pure vacation home. You could even go move into it and make it your principal residence, take advantage of that. Um, but that's a safe harbor. That gives you an idea of how the IRS is thinking. They're not going to let you have no rental use from, from minute one, uh, but they're pretty flexible in my mind in allowing you to do it that way. So I know uh, we see a lot of clients wanting to do that all the time and wanted to get that in before we uh, run out of time here, Norma. Well, I'm afraid, I'm afraid we're right at pretty close to that. Um, what a great conversation today. Just one last thought, and then we'll let uh, Greg go first and let folks know how they can get in touch with you. We have about 45 seconds for that. Great. So, yeah, uh, feel free to email me. That's probably the best way to get in touch with me. It's my name, Greg, G-R-E-G, dot Smith, S-M-I-T-H. You probably know that one. And then it's at IPX1031.com. Again, I for investment. P for property, X for x-ray, 1031.com. Norma, how do they get in touch with oh, you? Yes. 
I'm Norma Nisbet. My company's Vista Properties and Investments, and it is independent of the securities which are offered through Great Point Capital, GPC, located in Jackson, on Jackson Street in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, my phone number is 314-843-6048. Email norma.nisbet, N-I-S-B-E-T, at A-T-T dot net. Well, you've been great guest, great guest host, Norma. We've got to get you back. Now, Greg, you can come back, too, and bring someone. So uh, we'll, keep, <laughs> we'll keep the ball rolling here, okay? That's great. That's great. We'll but, be back. But uh, like I said, I'm fortunate to be able to teach the Land 101 class. And, Greg, thank you. I've got some really great points. That, uh, and I'm going to get on your website and get those letters out uh, tomorrow, I promise. It's too important. Yeah, thank you, Lou. You're Definitely welcome. appreciate it. And everyone else, do the same as Lou. Get on, get on Greg's website and get those letters out. Keep them cards and letters coming, as they say. Hey, thank you for joining yeah. us today. Let us know how you like the show. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to suggest, we'd appreciate them. All questions are welcome, and all of our guests may be emailed with your questions as well. This show is for the public and, most importantly, for the real estate agents who do not have a source for land education. All of our shows are downloaded after the show this morning on our master website, www.letstalkland.net. That's L-E-T-S talkland.net, guys. Also, you'll find us on Spotify and Podbean. My email is lou, L-O-U, at mylandpro.com. My cell phone number is 336-669-1405. And again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, landhub.com. If you're looking to buy or sell, LandHub previews thousands of properties nationwide. And that's for sale by owners, too. So get on there and list your property. Or if you're looking for something, go to LandHub.com. Rodney, how do they get in touch with us here? Well, Lou, they can go to our website. Go to WKTE1090.com. And also, they can download the simple radio app. Simple. And here's anywhere in the universe. How simple is it? It's pretty darn simple. You just go to an app and write yep. in simple? Simple radio app. you got to have the radio. It can't just be simple. Right. Simple radio app. And then what do you do? Uh, punch in WKTE 1090, and it brings it right up. Add it to your favorite. Wow. And what kind of music do we play? Only happy and beach and oldies music. Beach and oldies and only happy. We want people to be happy, don't That's we? That's right. And you have a contest going on. Well, it's going to end pretty soon. Yes. At the end of the month. Uh-huh. What we're asking our listening audience to do is take our beautiful Wave logo, as is, mm-hmm. and to incorporate it with some type of visual that promotes happy this is a happy radio station we only play happy music surfer sunshine smiley face whatever okay mm-hmm. and get those interests in we got a bunch coming in so far uh-huh. so get on there we're going to give a 500 dollars away That's at right. the end of the month and you're going to give us rights to that logo and now we're going to reuse that logo for all of our marketing and advertising. Mm-hmm. So you'll get some further exposure. That's right. So what do you think about that? That is great. So we've won, some, we've won some nice awards, right? Yeah, six years in a row being the top radio beach and oldies radio station on the East Coast. East Coast, that's like from Maine to Florida? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But not out west, huh? Not yet. Well, Simple Radio Maybe, out. Yeah, on the Simple Radio out. And yeah. then being the happy radio station. Yeah. Yeah, we want to be the only station that plays happy music, right? Mm-hmm. We're it. That's right. All right. And you got a nice award. Yeah, the ago. Reader's Choice Announcer of the Year Award. Mm-hmm. Wonder why. Yes. Okay. You're in the running this year. You know, not me. <laughs> <Maybe Shadow. laughs> hey, we had some great guests today. We'll see you next week.